Oh no. Train. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's the other thing. I have a train. I have a I have train tracks behind my house. <laughs> That's such a bummer. I know. <laughs> I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Pot Stirrer Podcast. Today is a very special episode because I'm joined by Elle Riccardi, who is one of the hosts of Short, Colorful, and Loud, an awesome podcast on Flying Machine. Welcome, Elle. Hi, I'm really excited to be here. I'm psyched to have you too. So tell us a little bit about your podcast. So like you said, I run Short, Colorful, and Loud with my friend Zach, and we both really love kids' movies, and we particularly love kids' movies from when we were really little, and maybe specifically the movies that we'd forgotten, or maybe you'd forgotten, and we just happen to be the only ones that remembered. But we basically watch sort of off-brand, non-Disney kids' movies and talk about what their value is now, what their value was then, and... We usually end up having a larger conversation about the ways in which the media we watch when we're kids really influences who we are and who we become. And we do that every other week. Yeah, that's pretty much it. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, I really like SEL. I love your dynamic with Zach. So it's really fun and interesting to listen to. Definitely, definitely check it out. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah. So how much have you been following the Democratic primaries? Really, really closely, because I have a lot of stake in this, as most of us do. Yeah. And it's a little bit overwhelming, but I've been doing my best. I watch the debates, um, and I get a lot of notifications about what happens with it anyways. So it's almost like I can't avoid it, to be honest. (laughs) I I hear you. Like, it's... Yeah, I mean, especially with so many people running right now, it's crazy. And, like, it'll be interesting to see how it all unfolds. Yeah, we lost. Somebody dropped out, and then somebody else stepped in. So we're still at, I think, 24. And it kind of feels like the Hunger Games of the Democratic primary. But I don't see a clear path to uh, getting down to one. I see a clear path to, like, how we're going to get down to four or five, but I don't know where it's going to go from there. Yeah, I, I hear you. I got a notification. I can't even remember the guy's name, but the notification for the guy saying that he was running for president. I was just like, are you serious? I, I don't even remember signing up for you. <laughs> I don't know who you are. It's I forget his name. He's a millionaire philanthropist, which, you know, we all love when those run for political office. So yeah. why not have another one? Yeah, I I don't know. But I guess I just try to keep telling myself that. So back in 2016, the Republicans had a ton of people running. I mean, it wasn't like, I don't think it was 24 people, but it was still a bunch of people running. And well, but then again, they came out with Donald Trump. But but the thing is that they were able to whittle it down from however many that they had to eventually won. And they were successful with a little help from their friends. I also think it's natural in such a fraught political climate as it can feel like we're in now to have so many different voices coming out about how to fix things, especially when it feels like the issues that are important to people today are so vastly varied to alliterate. Um, I think it just makes sense that there would be so many people who are putting forth these different solutions. And if you look at the people who are running, we do have a pretty big spectrum of possible solutions that people are putting forth to all of the issues that sort of face us right now. So I think it it follows that there would be a lot of people coming forward claiming to be able to fix everything. And uh, I guess we'll see how it goes. What What's most important will win out. So at least I hope. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to talk about political spectrums. When we're talking about political spectrums, we're talking about ways we can characterize political ideologies and positions in relation to one another. So this was something I thought would be a great subject to talk about, especially with the presidential primaries coming up 
and particularly on a Democratic side, as we, we kind of alluded to, we're hearing a lot about this divide between centrist Democrats and left-wing Democrats. Um, it's also coming up with the debates over impeachment, as well as other areas of public policy, mm-hmm. from immigration to abortion to reparations. Um, so right now the Democrats hold the House, but there's been some tension brewing between Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and the group of left-wing freshman reps like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. I know that I've mentioned that this could be a subject to talk about. Um, I know that this was a subject that you wanted to join me in digging into. What made you want to get into political spectrums? So specifically this primary and everything that's going on between the Speaker of the House and sort of the freshman class at the House right now has made me think a lot about how it's not just about this idea of left versus right, Republican versus Democrat, even though I think we tend to think of it that way. If anything, the primary so far has shown me that there is a huge spectrum within the sort of left blue semi-Democrat wing on one side and its divides and its far ends are just as different as we sort of think about it in terms of it being um, right versus left. And so this idea of treating it as two teams that are competing doesn't really make sense when there's a spectrum within each team. So I was just interested to get into that and talk a little bit more about how us acknowledging that is changing the way we do politics in the United States. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Now, when we talk about these concepts, we're going to, as much as we can, talk about them from left to right. I'll also post graphics of political spectrums on Instagram. So for those of you that are visual learners, you can get a visual of what we're talking about. So I think it's important to talk about the building blocks of political spectrums. How do we understand who's left wing and who's right wing? How are political spectrums constructed? Now, most often they're constructed based on a few different factors. So these building blocks tend to include economic freedom. So a degree of economic freedom, a degree of social freedom, tolerance of economic or social inequality, or some mix of these concepts. Now, when we talk about economic freedom, we're generally talking about a scale that goes from full government control to no government control, or in other words, full socialism to full capitalism. With social freedom, we're talking about a continuum from full individual liberty to authoritarianism. Then the last part, tolerance of inequalities. So to what degree does a society tolerate tyranny of the majority? So this would range from full equality enforced by government to full tolerance of inequality. The thing to keep in mind is that these are ranges. Um, like Al was saying, these are not binary choices. And as these are often elements of political spectrums, these can sometimes come into conflict. I think the most basic one that we talk a lot about now is this idea of unfettered economic freedom very frequently ends up exploiting particularly people at the bottom of the economic chain. So people who are already disadvantaged from coming from places like not having a ton of money when you're growing up, and how those divides generally run along race lines in the United States. If you don't place economic limits on companies in the United States, they're almost always going to exploit people. And that's sort of this idea of like, you can't really have full social freedom if you don't limit business to some extent. Right. They kind of end up butting heads. Like you have to put a limiter somewhere and it's either going to be imposed through class distinction, or it's something where we're going to have to, you know, fetter these economic forces in order to protect people. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And I think this is kind of why I mentioned that third building block, the idea of tolerance of inequality, um, is because I think equality in particular, when we talk about political spectrums, and particularly when we talk about political philosophy and certain like ideologies, I think equality in particular is a factor that gets downplayed a lot. 
Because like you were saying, so when we talk about full economic freedom, the question is like economic freedom for who? (laughs) So, I mean, there are, so yeah, I mean, for people who have the means and maybe, and even easier for those who were born with the means or were gifted the means, those people tend to feel that full economic freedom more than someone who is poor. We talk about people like pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Mm -hmm. But realistically, it's if people already have money, it's a lot easier for them to keep that money and to grow it than to try to get out of their situation if they don't have a lot of money to begin with. Not that they can't, but it's very, very difficult. And there are a lot of roadblocks to doing that. It's one of those things that if you look at sort of like laissez-faire capitalism, essentially, is what we would be talking about there, um, free market capitalism, in a bubble, it seems like it would be the best for everybody because it operates on this idea that if you have the best ideas or you have the best products, you will automatically be successful. So everyone's success will be determined by their effort. But that's just not how it works in practice because there are so many outside factors that end up disadvantaging groups systemically over generations. When you bring that up, one of the things that people don't talk about is for those that are well off or even those that might not necessarily be well off, but are but at least have some money, right? Mm-hmm. There are these intangibles as far as like connections that people have access to the more money that they have, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone who doesn't have a lot of money. I think of even being able to, because I mean, I came up in, I was going to say lower middle class, but my parents were pretty well educated. And so there were certain factors that helped me growing up to where once I got to college and grad school, not that I wasn't smart enough to do the work or anything like that, but then I also was able to meet people by being involved in things in college and grad school that had connections to different places or where I could be involved in different programs or whatnot, that somebody who doesn't have those means, even if they're very smart and very talented and very driven, may not have those connections simply because they don't know the right people. I think a lot of times we think of the money aspect, but we don't always think of what people are afforded based on based on money or based on where they live or based on, you know, whatever other advantages. What more money would afford you access to, essentially. Right, right. We tend to talk about the economic and the social freedom dimension, but we tend to not really get into the fact that with both of those, sometimes when we talk about, like, say, a full freedom in that regard, there are also inequalities to where not everyone is going to really experience that the same. Exactly. So political spectrums can be on a straight line continuum, or it can be illustrated in a more complex manner. And we'll talk about a few of those. First, getting into the linear spectrums. The type of political spectrum most of us in the U.S. are familiar with is a liberal conservative or left-right spectrum. Now, the terms left and right to describe political positions, where did that come from? In France, around the time of the French Revolution in the late 1700s, in their legislature, the Assembly, from the vantage point of the Speaker of the Assembly, the aristocracy or the French nobility sat on the right-hand side, while the commoners sat on the left. Now, the thing to keep in mind is that at the time, What it meant to be on the right was to be in favor of nobility and church interests, while being on the left meant being in favor of capitalism and free markets. The interests of the working class and peasants were kind of outside the system, but because they typically weren't in support of the aristocracy, which, I mean, I think that makes sense, they tended to get lumped in with the capitalists. Now, Today, the most popular political spectrum in the U.S. is a linear left-right spectrum. On the left, we have liberty, social equality, and focus on the needs of the collective. 
On the right, we have authority, social hierarchy, and focus on the individual. And then there's the center, which encompasses people who aren't solidly hardcore in favor of either ideal or take on elements of both sides in terms of their own political opinions. Now, a spectrum that goes along with this, and this is one I tend to use, is a socialism-capitalism spectrum. So on the extreme left is extreme socialism, collective ownership of the means of production. And on the extreme right is extreme capitalism, full privatization of the means of production. The U.S. tends to lean hard into capitalism, Republicans more so than Democrats, but even most Democrats would rather lean towards capitalism than socialism. Of course, there is a history behind that. The Cold War from 1947 through 1991 pit the U.S. against the Soviet Union in escalated global tensions. Part of this included the U.S. seeking to spread capitalism in the name of democracy across the globe and practicing a policy of containment against the Soviets, who were communists. I say capitalism rather than democracy because the U.S. supported regimes that were right-wing and capitalist, but you can't really define them as socially free or as bastions of equality. For example, Augusto Pinochet of Chile, Basista of Cuba, and apartheid South Africa. And then here at home, while socialism was never fully embraced by the elite classes in the U.S., there were elements of it in unionization that were more openly embraced prior to the Cold War. But after the Cold War began, it was an opportunity for American elites to lump socialism in with communism, even though socialism and communism aren't necessarily one in the same. Now, Even though the Cold War is over, and it has been for nearly 30 years, old habits die hard. So even to this day, politics in the U.S. tends to be skewed to the right, to where even what we would call centrist Democrats aren't, at least in my opinion, aren't really in the center. They're less capitalist than Republicans, but still lean capitalist. Many of them are pro-business. They're still not exactly pushing for universal health care state-funded higher education, stuff like that, like we see in other Western democratic countries that don't have that same direct Cold War history as being one of the superpowers. So those countries aren't as skittish about embracing socialist programs. And I would just kind of add to this, like, I think it's sort of the kind of mentality that, I don't know, Elle, if you're familiar with this spat between Nancy Pelosi and AOC and the other freshman congresswomen. Yeah, increasingly familiar as it uh, pops up on my Twitter every day now. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I know like she said at one point that these congresswomen don't have a following. Some of that mentality, of course, there's some element of a rivalry or, but there's also, I think, that same mentality of like, okay, we don't want to go too far in a socialist direction. I think that watching the old guard of the Democratic Party, essentially, you've got Nancy Pelosi, who's Speaker of the House, you've got Joe Biden, who I think is sort of representing that block within the Democratic primary. They're sort of pitting themselves as a restoration movement, um, a return to normalcy, which, as you suggested, is already right skewed, particularly in the wake of the Cold War, which was still very much happening when both Pelosi and Biden rose to prominence in the political sphere. And this idea of the younger guard sort of, not younger, I shouldn't say, because Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are definitely the head of this, but the more progressive side of the Democratic Party, which is definitely a reformation movement, recreating things. And I think a lot of it has to do with, as we move further and further from the Cold War, like you talked about, we're really breaking down that idea that socialism is bad. That's not something that I think most people prescribe to anymore. They don't necessarily, people my age don't really associate that with communist Russia. And I think as we move towards that, you're going to see those tensions increase just because, like you said, for 40 plus years, there was this big bad that was labeled as socialist that was undeniably present here in the United States. And I think um, I think the Cold War has a lot to do with that. We're still dealing with that legacy, but we're just now starting to see a generation of people who grew up without it. Right. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just, it's crazy to think about um, because I'm old enough to where I can remember as a kid when the Cold War was ending. So there was a little bit of that. I kind of had an idea of what it was, uh, especially since my parents were very political. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't think I fully got it in the same way that, say, someone who came of age during the Cold War would have gotten it. Mm-hmm. And now we have people who are adults that were born after the Cold War ended. I literally was born the year after the Berlin Wall came down. I have, or not the year after the Berlin Wall came down, after the USSR was dissolved, essentially. I have no recollection of the Cold War. (laughs) It all happened before me. And AOC, for example, is only, I think she's two years older than me. So, you know, that that's just not even a legacy that we could even claim to have vague memories of. We don't, we don't remember that at all. Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially when we're looking at millennials. And people always talk about like millennials, right? But I mean, I've, I've talked about in other episodes, like millennials are solidly adults. Millennials are people that are from like, say, mid 20s or so to almost 40. Even by the most liberal take on what the millennial like birth spectrum is from like 1985 to 2000, I think that's like the biggest window. The youngest millennials can vote now. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think like the biggest, the largest one I've seen is from 1981 to 2000. Yeah. I was born in the early 80s. So I'm kind of in that weird. That weird cusp. Yeah. Where it's like sort of Generation X, but sort of millennial. And it just, yeah, I guess it just depends on who, on who comes up with it. But either way, like, yeah, definitely like millennials are yeah, they're solidly adults. They're old enough to vote. And many, and now we're getting to the point where, you know, especially some of the older millennials are, they're old enough to run for office and even they're able to run for president. Yeah. And so like, that's the thing. There's that new generation, like you were saying, that is, um, that wasn't directly influenced by the Cold War and they didn't experience the Cold War in the same way as some of the previous generations. And I think as a result, we don't have that right skew that you talked about as strongly as maybe our parents or our predecessors did. Right. So there is also the communism fascism spectrum, which is a broader version of the American left right spectrum. Typically, this would be the order from left to right. Communism, state ownership of means of production. Socialism, collective ownership of means of production. Liberalism, so government involvement in social liberty or equality, centrism, then conservatism, private ownership in social hierarchy, libertarianism, full privatization and individualism, both economically and socially, and fascism, nationalism, and state social control. Now, have you heard of what's called horseshoe theory? I have not. This was one I hadn't heard of either. I've heard of people alluding to it, but I didn't know it had a name until I did the research on this. But um, I thought this was fascinating. With the communist and fascism spectrum in particular, the horseshoe theory is a variation of that. So horseshoe theory was developed by French philosopher Jean-Pierre Fay. And according to the theory, the communism-fascism continuum should be shaped more like a horseshoe or an incomplete circle rather than a straight line. With communism and fascism being closer to each other due to the similarities in ideology centered around authoritarianism and state control and being more opposed to centrist views and vice versa than opposite ends of the spectrum. These similarities between communism and fascism give horseshoe theory credence. But there are a couple of downsides. One is highlighted by journalist Noah Berlatsky in the Pacific Standard, who argues that while there have been situations where extreme left and right have worked together, such as Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union initially being allies during World War II, there have been other times when the center has sympathized with or given cover to extreme right views. Some examples given were Neville Chamberlain of the UK being willing to appease Nazi Germany, 
Or just a couple of years ago, Jeff Sessions, who couldn't obtain a federal judgeship in 1986 due to his authoritarian, racist views, was able to become attorney general by attaining the votes of centrist as well as right-wing Republicans. And you could probably attribute a little bit of that also to that sort of uh, right-wing skew that the United States has, where our centrists tend to actually be a little bit more right-wing than truly, like, fundamentally centrist. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's that's why I'm kind of, sometimes I question, like, when people say, like, I'm centrist, what does that actually mean? <laughs> like, so I kind of like to tease that out a little bit. <laughs> Where's the middle for you? (laughs) So, yeah, there's that. Berlatsky argues that centrists aren't as far away from extremist views, particularly right-wing views, as they often claim. There's a part of me that feels like sometimes because in American society, at least more recently, claiming centrism has often been a way for people to tolerate extreme right-wing actions without really owning the implications. So, like, for example, the House, which is mostly Democratic now, um, led by Nancy Pelosi, voting for the border funding bill, which seems to have turned out to be a win for Trump and a way to continue enabling the barbaric immigration policies of the Trump administration. But then at the same time, I do want to keep an open mind regarding what centrism actually is, as opposed to what we call centrum, centrum, God. Um, as opposed to what we call centrism when we talk about American politics. So, I mean, I just, I think, or what we talked about earlier, centrism, like, that's kind of why I like to ask the question when people say, I'm centrist, what does that mean to you? Because now, most of the time when I ask that, what I get out of that seems to be more right skewed. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that meme? Like, it's a meme where they say, they have like the clan on one hand on one side saying we hate black people mm-hmm. and then on the other side saying you shouldn't discriminate against black people and then in the middle the middle like there's one guy saying can we compromise yeah seen that <laughs> that's kind of the thing i think about sometimes with centrism is that there is a danger of leaning into impulses that can be damaging I think that sometimes centrism operates on a fallacy that they want to hear out and give both sides equal time, and it operates on the fallacy that both of those sides are truly equal in, I think the most obvious place it is now is in um Antifa discourse. Right. One side, the side that Antifa tends to act out against are violent white supremacists who would like to kill anybody that is not a white person, versus Antifa who would like to fight back against white supremacy. Those are not To me, at least, those are not concepts that need to be held equal. One side wants to kill people and the other side wants to stop them. There's no hearing both sides for that, in my opinion. They're not equal. I definitely agree. And besides the fact that the ideologies themselves are not the same, right? It's not like the same thing on both sides. There's also the fact that people want to downplay the danger that white supremacy leads to and not only for racial minorities although definitely for racial minorities yeah but also for you know for the society as large including white people i find that white supremacists almost always also have very um strong ideas about what women should be allowed to do with their bodies and what women should be allowed to do in society and they also tend to carry with them strong ideas about the way that poor people should either be supported or rather not supported in society. And those things, like you said, they're dangerous for literally everybody. So another downside of horseshoe theory is that, and we kind of alluded to this, is that it does minimize key differences. So as we talked about in the beginning, political spectrums are typically made up of some combination of three elements, economic freedom, social freedom, and tolerance of inequality. These ideologies have something to say about all three, but while they're similar in economic and social freedom, they're not the same in terms of tolerance for inequality. Uh, What differentiates them is very important and shouldn't be downplayed. Communism hammers home the idea of equality. Now, whether it happens in application or not, that might be another thing, but at least in terms of the ideology, 
that's the idea is that everyone is equal, especially the workers of the world unite, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. While fascism at its core supports inequality to a major degree, especially the nation or the group of people versus those perceived as outsiders. So, for example, in Nazism, those outsiders can be a part of the state, but not considered part of the nation. For example, some of the groups that were targeted by the Nazis, like the Jews and the Roma, lived in Germany at the time of the Nazis' rise to power, but they were still considered outsiders because they weren't considered ethnically Aryan. So that one difference between communism and fascism isn't exactly minor. Not that I'm necessarily completely caping for communism, but it's important to understand this key distinction because that's a big deal. And the danger is that some people, especially I've seen this on the right, tend to complete the circle, essentially placing communism and fascism on the same side and calling both left-wing ideologies, which is erroneous and erases the extreme end of right-wing ideology and all that comes with it. Ask your local neo-Nazi or Klansman if they think of themselves as leftists. <laughs> like, good luck with that. <laughs> Hot Star Podcast will be back after this. This month, Flying Machine is doing what we call hashtag flyer drive. We love creating awesome content for you to enjoy. We do that because we love it. Yeah, we really do. At the same time, we want to see our network grow. If this is something you're inclined to do, join our Patreon. You can be a patron at the $1, $5, and at our new $10 level. Now, let's talk about that new level. So there are a lot of really cool things at the $1 level and the $5 level. Now, the $10 level, you get all the things in the $1 and $5 a month level. But then you also get access to exclusive polls for deciding blogs and podcast topics. And you get an annual gift box from Flying Machine. Isn't that awesome? And I think it's going to have gifts from all the different hosts. We're going to go through and sort of like pick, you know, different things that we're excited about that we'd really like to share with you. I've, I've been talking about, I won't commit to this, but there's, there's been a chance I will bake cookies. There's a chance of that. Things like that. So this new level is definitely awesome. And if you want to start out at that level, that's great. And if you're already a flying machine patron, Check out that new level. Cookies are awesome. Maybe. <laughs> like maybe. May, may, it, maybe there may be cookies, and if there are cookies, that would be awesome. Yes. In any case, the stuff that's going to go into the box is going to be cool stuff. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's definitely it's, it'll definitely be fun. So now all this month, you'll get a taste of the more we have to offer from Patreon, including more episodes, collabs like this one, and a lot more. So go to flymachine.network slash support today to learn more and be a patron. Now, back to Potstir Podcast. So one of the things that we did in preparation for talking about this and that really feeds itself perfectly into the subject of political spectrums is if you go on the internet, you can find a lot of quizzes that will tell you where you fall on various political spectrums. The most common one you've probably seen that's been turned into a meme is the two-axis political compass that measures left and right on the x-axis, and it measures libertarian versus authoritarian on the y-axis. The political compass is actually a quiz that's been around for a really long time, and what it does is it asks you questions or makes statements based on various subjects like social views, religious views, the economy, and implementation of government, and you can respond by either strongly agreeing, regular agreeing, you guys know how those sorts of quizzes work, and at the end, it will place you on this political spectrum 
based on your preference towards one or the other in both directions. So either up or down, left to right. Left to right is on the left to right axis, obviously. So we took that, or at least I took that. I think you did too? Yes, I did. And uh, I'm, I'm curious to find out, or can we share where we fell on that? Yes. Where did you fall? I fell left libertarian, very left libertarian. Me too. <laughs> we will have that on Instagram as well so you can see where we fell. But yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, did you have a chance to see where different political figures, where they estimate that they fall? Um, yes, I did. And the only one I really remember is that it was Gandhi because it turns out I'm way more leftist than Gandhi. I found that I was somewhere in the neighborhood of Marxism and Chomsky. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that was that was pretty interesting. I thought it was fascinating that they put Obama in the right authoritarian, but just less so than Bush, Trump, Reagan. Actually, a lot of the um, U.S. presidents are in that right authoritarian quadrant. I guess that does make sense. Um, I think a lot of that probably has to do with the president being the head of the military. And a lot of presidential policy has to do with the military. And a lot of the time, the United States has been really, really authoritarian with the implementation of the military, at least in my opinion. Especially most recent U.S. presidents. Some of the older presidents, Washington and Jefferson, were in the right libertarian quadrant. I think for a lot of these, this is kind of a matter of degree. But yeah, like they were in that quadrant. But the most recent presidents are in that right authoritarian quadrant. I just looked one up, actually, that I find really interesting, which is that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are both in the right authoritarian, and they're very close to each other. Hmm, that's interesting. I don't see Clinton yeah. on this one, on this one I'm looking at. But yeah, I just, I think it depends on when they did that. Because yeah, I wouldn't put them close by each other now. There's also one that has all of the current 2020 candidates. And the only ones that are not in the right authoritarian group are Sanders, Gabbard, and... um Williamson and Gravel. Hmm, interesting. Everyone else is real in there. Wow. Of course, it's subjective because I don't know how many of these people actually took that test. But considering their policies, yeah, I'm I'm not super surprised that they would be in that one part of the spectrum. Considering that the way that U.S. politics operates is like there's kind of that limited set of like ideas that seem to be popular or tend or they tend to adopt so mm -hmm. and sanders isn't even that far left he's still like just over the line right yeah yeah like i have yeah like i have on the one i'm looking at he's pretty left but he's like kind of he's in the middle between authoritarianism and libertarianism yeah he's he's almost dead center here actually as well yeah I think a lot of it also speaks to the idea that these spectrums are not in a vacuum and they can't really be taken in a vacuum because so much of this is subjective and has to do with public perception of right versus left, of authoritarian versus libertarian. And it also kind of comes down to the disconnect between how you identify when you talk to people, like you were saying, when you ask someone if they're a centrist or why they're a centrist. Versus if you actually get down to brass tacks and questions like this quiz poses that are specific and have to do with specific instances, how you actually come out. Yeah. This was actually created by a group in the UK originally. Uh-huh. So it was developed by One World Action, which was a human rights charity in the UK. They're no longer around, though. Mm-hmm. The current website is now maintained by political journalist Wayne Brittenden, who is out of New Zealand. I find it interesting that kind of had the outsider perspective relative to the U.S. in terms of where people stand. Because I think that if it was someone who created this compass that was in the U.S., it probably would be different because I think our ideas of authoritarianism and libertarianism and what's left and what's right 
is different than a lot of other um, post-industrialized democratic countries. Yeah, it's this idea of Bernie Sanders seems like a crazy leftist to a lot of us in the United States, but he's, like we said, according to this political compass that was created by somebody in the UK, which is far more socialized than we are at this point and was back then as well, he's kind of a centrist. He doesn't really push those boundaries. And for the most part, these 2020 presidential candidates all kind of fall towards the right side of that spectrum, which is interesting given how most of the conversations surrounding the 2020 election now have been a talk about like, how far is the Democratic Party willing to push progressivism? How far are we willing to push that idea within our party? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I when I took it, I remember looking at the questions and thinking that some of them were I think it might be an imperfect system because I feel like the questions are a little bit too open-ended to really be have black and white answers. Like the only options for every answer are strongly disagree, disagree, agree, strongly agree. And they're for questions like the enemy of my enemy is my friend or there is now a worrying fusion of information and entertainment. Like there there are these questions that I think it reduces them a little bit to put them in those terms. So even though I fell super far left and libertarian, I don't know that I necessarily really would be that. I wondered how much competition there is for this, essentially the spectrum that we're probably all the most familiar with now. And there's actually a lot of different quizzes out there. There's the political circle quiz, which places you in different sort of political spheres. That one was sort of interesting. Um, I couldn't actually find a quiz for it, but I did see a lot of results. And then there's the world's shortest political quiz, which is six questions. And when I took that, I was like a dead center centrist. So even when we talk about these things, it's important to remember that the information that they gather in order to create that visualization of where you are, that also has a lean to it to some extent, and it's going to influence the way that your results come out. Yeah, totally. That That's one thing to keep in mind is that when it comes to political spectrums in general, um, how we measure where people stand is to some degree subjective. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, spectrums are developed by political philosophers, journalists, activists, pundits, as well as academics. And so, of course, their own biases will come into play. So, yeah, when you take these quizzes, there's no telling where you might end up. (laughs) Yeah. And then another thing that we didn't mention was anarchy. Yeah. And um, anarchy is essentially society without government, without leadership or hierarchy of any kind. Now, some observers will call it left wing, but it depends on who you ask. Economically, you can see how like anarchy could be like right wing. And then socially, it would be, could be seen as left wing. Because when you think of like total economic freedom, you think a lot of times we think of that as a right wing concept. And then on the social side, the idea of complete social freedom, for the most part, like we tend to kind of see that more as a left-wing ideal. Anarchy is just kind of a weird thing where it depends on who you ask in terms of where that will fit. It's one of those things where it depends on how you personally think you would do in an anarchist world. I think there's a lot of people out there who think they would do really, really well, and they're maybe coming from the right side of things. And I think there's a lot of other people who think the world would be better and are coming from the left side of things. Uh, That's a little bit more of a complicated issue because it's hard to even think about it because we haven't really seen anarchy anywhere in a while. Yeah. I think that a lot of times people will, and this is just my opinion, but I think that people will say like, oh yeah, anarchy would be great. No government on your back, blah, blah, blah. But then I think that a lot of times people that say that don't always realize what government actually does. Mm-hmm. I think of, for example, and this isn't necessarily anarchy, but so do you remember that whole controversy back when um, when Obama was president? How like he had said, you didn't work for that. Like just kind of trying to highlight the fact that people, that you don't get everything just because you, you're this great person that works hard. There are also advantages and there are also like 
other reasons why you are in, say, a great position economically. Quote, if you were successful, somebody along the line gave you some help. There was a great teacher somewhere in your life. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we have that allowed you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you got a business, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. The internet didn't get invented on its own. Government research created the internet so that all the companies could make money off the internet. The point is that when we succeed, we succeed because of our individual initiative, but also because we do things together. There are some things, just like fighting fires, we don't do on our own. I mean, imagine if everybody had their own fire service. That would be a hard way to organize fighting fires, end quote. This is, um. it always reminds me of this moment with my dad, who identifies very strongly as a libertarian. Mm-hmm. And he likes to go off about it and lecture about the importance of being self-made. And uh, my aunt one year at Christmas said, oh, so you bushwhacked your way here? You couldn't have driven here on those socialist roads. <laughs> yeah, like speaking of that, it, it reminded me when Obama said that, the way that I used to take the work, I had to go onto a state road, hit that state road to go onto the interstate. Mm-hmm. And on the way there, there was this business that had like a big barn attached to it. And the barn said, we did build this, <laughs> like a- alluding to the whole Obama thing. But then I was like, okay, this is sitting on a state road. That is less than a mile away from the interstate. How do you think people are going to get to your business? (laughs) And also, okay, you guys built it. Did you go into the woods and chop down those trees? Or did you buy them from a company that probably has certain standards for wood placed on it by the federal government that made it so that when you went and bought that wood from them, you weren't going to get balsam when you asked for pine? Like... There are so many things that made you able to build that barn that were put in place by other people. And even building that barn, because it wasn't a construction business either. Like, I can't remember what it was, but it was some other kind of business. And it's like, okay, well, somebody else likely built that barn for you. It was like a nice barn. Yeah. And so like, yeah, somebody might likely built that for you. And they likely had to deal with, they had government regulations that made it to where once it was done, you could walk in it and you could use it without collapsing on your head. And they probably had some sort of government provided insurance for them so that they felt comfortable building it for you. So that way, let's say the structure collapsed, they weren't going to, you know, be without help. Right. There are so many ways that the government definitely supported that. Yeah. Kind of getting back to anarchy, I think that a lot of times when people talk about like, oh, yeah, without government, everything would be great. It's hard to know because there is so much that the government does that we take for granted. Mm -hmm. Now, going along with the subjectivity, what also influences our understanding of political spectrums more generally is What ideas are considered to be acceptable as opposed to what we might consider radical? And our center, as we were talking about, our center might not be an objective center. I've talked a bit in previous episodes about the Overton window, and it's something that also fits in here. Um, Elle, do you want to talk a little bit more about the Overton window? Yeah, and I think we've almost kind of been talking about it this whole episode without really naming it, which is this idea that right now in the United States, we're having a little bit of like a shift where we have a generation of politicians and influencers who grew up without the sort of negative connotations of communism and socialism that a lot of previous generations of politicians grew up with. And now we're starting to push the Overton window In that things that were considered radical, which is sort of like one end of the Overton window, are now becoming popular, which is more towards the center. And to give you a better visualization of that, the idea of the Overton window is it determines what's essentially okay to talk about in public discourse. The Overton window, sort of its levels um, are policy, which is things that are actually in practice 
That's the center of the Overton window. And on either side of that, you have popularity, you have what people consider sensible, you have what people consider acceptable, what people consider radical, and what people consider unthinkable. Policy sits in the middle, and on either end of the actual Overton window, you have acceptable going in both directions. And the idea is the Overton window sort of shifts on a spectrum of less freedom versus more freedom, which I know sounds a little bit confusing, but it's the idea that like I said, socialist policies like Medicare for all used to sit outside of the Overton window and be considered radical and represent maybe less freedom depending on who you speak to, but now have been slowly moving towards popular and then eventually moving towards the center of that Overton window, which would be policy, which is kind of what the ACA aimed to do. The whole idea of the Overton window was actually put forward by Joseph P. Overton, who stated that an idea's political viability depends mainly on whether or not it falls within this range or rather than on a politicians' individual preferences. So that idea is, it has less to do with what the politician wants and what they would like to do, and more with how acceptable it is to the public. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, like you said, the Overton window has gained prominence lately, because there are these policies that at one point fell outside of the Overton window that are now within it. So, I mean, now, like you mentioned, the idea of Medicare for all at one point is like that was considered a more radical or even in some circles, unthinkable policy. But now people are seriously talking about that. And then on the other end of that spectrum, there's putting kids in cages that, yeah, if you talked about that 10 years ago, for example, people would be, I think most people would be uncomfortable with that idea, but it's become more normalized with the Trump administration and his rhetoric about the policies of putting kids in cages and family separation. One of the things that I found really interesting about the Overton window is it really is just a measure of what we consider normal in the public sphere. And that idea of normal is affected now by this thing called normalcy creep or the death by a thousand cuts, which is the process by which something that is unthinkable slowly gets introduced to the public and then becomes part or ends up in the Overton window. Like you said, this idea that putting children in cages is wrong and 10 years ago, it's something that wouldn't even have entered public discourse but now we talk about it every day because slowly over the past few years, we have worn down our ideas about immigration and immigrants and who's a citizen and what rights are afforded to non-citizens in the United States. And slowly through normalcy creep, it has become normal for a portion of the United States to think to themselves that that is right and fair and just that those people should be or should be in cages. Right. And even if it's not in the center, well, it is in the center of the Overton window because it is policy there's always room for discourse around it. So like the reason why I want to bring that up is because it's important to understand that what is acceptable isn't necessarily the most moderate of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> and not all moderate ideas are good ideas because if we look at what becomes policy or what might be like maybe outside of policy, but might be, be acceptable or might be seen as sensible, like because of like how it's talked about by politicians, pundits, whoever, over time, it becomes normalized. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think it's a good idea to learn about what these spectrums are and especially learning about the different ideologies because I think it, maybe helps us get a good grasp of what's actually going on. Because I think if we don't pay attention, then it becomes easier to accept the unacceptable. And the the Overton window, like I said, it really is a, it's more like a parameters of what it's okay to talk about in public, essentially. And because it's almost, you could see it as if you've ever used like one of those sliding charts that help you like figure things out, like there's a piece of paper with a hole in it over another piece of paper and it moves up and down, it really does sort of control what sort of discourse we have access to. And as things enter that window, we have more access to discourse about it within the public sphere, the more those ideas seem normal. And I think that's one of the reasons it, it sort of ties into what we were talking about with how most 
American politicians actually fall into that right authoritarian group. And it's because most of what is within the Overton window in the United States up until the past few years have been right authoritarian ideas at their core. Whereas now, a lot of people have talked about how Bernie Sanders' 2016 bid for the presidency really pushed the Overton window, and we're starting to have more radical social ideas become popular to talk about. It's starting to push the Overton window, but I think specifically in the United States right now, rather than pushing the Overton window and sort of in one direction or another, it's almost expanded it, gets pulled at the Overton window, because on one side, we've started to radicalize and talk about things like socialized healthcare, socialized implementation of public transit. There's even people starting to talk about universal basic income and radical wealth redistribution. And on the other side, we've started talking about detaining in inhumane situations immigrants. We've started talking about increased surveillance on individuals. We've started talking about more aggressive military strategies outside of the United States. So it's almost like the Overton window is getting pulled in both directions, which is probably what's leading to things like having 24 people running for one presidential or one presidential candidate slot. I would definitely agree that like I think that the Overton window is expanding more than anything else. It's stretching more than sliding. Right. The quiz thing got me interested, and it actually brought me back to a quiz that I'd taken a really long time. It's called I, or a really long time ago. It's called I Side With. It has less to do with spectrums, but more to do with something that stuck out to me. Like I said, I ended up a centrist on one quiz. I ended up a really leftist libertarian on another quiz. And I was thinking about how the way that you identify, whether it's through party registration or what bumper sticker you put on your car or what candidate you back, there's usually a disconnect between that and sort of your nuts and bolts takes on different issues. So I side with org, I believe, is a really in-depth quiz where you go and they ask you questions and you answer, but it's not just a question of I strongly agree or disagree with the subject. It's a question like, do you think that the government should spend more money on public transportation? And you can answer yes or no, or you can give a nuanced answer. Like for me, my answer to that is yes, and it should specifically be for environmentally friendly alternatives to things like cars. And having that nuance in those answers and that nuance in those questions allows this quiz to actually put together a sort of profile of who you are in relation to what sort of parties you identify most highly with based on policies that they've pushed, and also what candidates you should identify with based on the policies that they've announced, their stances on various things and quotes that they've had. And it was, a, I think, a far more interesting take than just putting yourself on a spectrum, but it did also have a spectrum element to it and that you sort of had like a percentage matchup with each party and a percentage matchup with each candidate. And I wasn't surprised by the candidate that I associated most with, but I was surprised by the party that I associated most with, the Socialist Party of the United States. <laughs> wow. And it sort of fed back into the spectrum thing for me and that I think it's important to remember, like we said, this Overton window determines what these questions on these sorts of tests are going to be and who you are when it comes down to actual questions of things like, do you believe in Medicare for all is different from how we sort of talk about politics on a broader spectrum in the United States. I think we it's been said before, but we sort of treat it as like a, a team thing. Like, I'm a lefty in the same way that I support the Yankees. Whereas who you actually are on those spectrums is usually pretty different from what you think it's going to be. So I just think it's important to keep that fallacy in mind, that there are already parameters on where you can fall on the spectrum based on the Overton window, and that it's not as simple as saying I'm one thing or the other. That dichotomy, I think, is a little bit oversimplifying. Thank you very much for joining me today, Elle. Thank you so much for having me. This was an awesome conversation, and I've got like lots to think about now. Yeah, me too. Definitely. So your podcast, Short, Colorful, and Loud, where can listeners find it? You can find us at shortcolorfulandloud.tumblr.com. You can also find us wherever you get your podcast. Just type in short, colorful, and loud. Or, especially this month, you could go to flyingmachine.network slash shows, and you can find Short, Colorful, and Loud and all the other great shows like this one. Awesome. If you're a newbie to SEO, what might be the best episode to start out with? Back in June, we did an episode on Ice Age, which is a movie that I saw when I was about 10. 
And on the surface, it's a funny animal movie about... It's basically three men and a baby, but with a mammoth, a Sid, or a sloth named Sid, and a saber-toothed tiger. But when we sort of pried into the movie, we discovered it's actually kind of a movie about death and grief and loss. And I think it's one of our most interesting conversations that we've had about a kid's movie, and I would definitely recommend starting there. It's also pretty funny, and Ice Age is a great movie. Awesome. Short, colorful, loud, hot podcast, and all of the great podcasts of Flying Machine, like Elle mentioned, can be found on flyingmachine.network slash shows. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. Thank you.